King Henry VIII, to six wives he was wedded, one died, one survived, two divorced, two beheaded. Welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And today we are embarking on our quest to understand the man, Henry VIII, tyrant king of England, British bluebeard, beheader, divorcer of wives, accidental reformist. Did I get it all? (laughs) I think that was it. I also really appreciated your Shakespeare there. Thank you for... Uh, going along with my dramatic retelling, a rereading of one of the rhymes about Henry VIII. He earned a bit of a reputation in his time and got rewarded with some lovely mnemonic devices and rhymes to try to keep his life straight. Although, you know, really, it's not that hard to keep the wives separate. You just have to remember that most of them are named Catherine or Anne. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And I do want to point out before we get too far into this, I know that that's not Shakespeare. It was a joke. So just in case anybody out there is saying, oh my gosh, this girl thinks that's Shakespeare, that's not a royal oops. I was doing my best Shakespearean projection. (laughs) Yes, yes, that was very good. But yeah, as Allie mentioned, we're getting into Henry VIII. It's part one. So we're going to cover the early years. Yes, a lot. I buckle up, guys. This is I hope you have a a long commute ahead of you because there's a lot going to happen here. There's a lot going on here. We've got to set the stage, and we're also going to go into a lot regarding the first wife, Catherine of Aragon, because they were married for 24 years. Mm-hmm. And in Henry VIII's reign, that's actually a long time, because the other wives all together, I believe, span 10 years. Yeah. So it's pretty impressive that he packed five wives into 10 years. There was a little overlap with Anne Boleyn. I mean, they weren't married for very long, but she was... She was there for about seven of Catherine's years, so. There was. And if anybody out there gets mad at us for spoilers, I think everybody knows. If you're listening to this, you probably have a general idea of the life of Henry VIII, so we're not going to be precious about spoilers regarding any of this. I don't know. Can you even call it a spoiler? It's it's like a 500-year-old spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think. I don't think that that applies. So, like we said Tonight, we're just going to lay some groundwork, give you some background. We're going to try to get an idea of who Henry VIII was as a man, as a prince, as a husband, as a king, before we get into the stuff that everybody remembers him for. I think a lot of these early years don't get the attention that the later years do because he wasn't really rocking the boat. He wasn't causing a lot of trouble. So should we start at the very beginning, as uh, yeah, Maria von Trapp says? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get into the do-re-mi of Henry VIII. All right. So Henry VIII was born on June 28th, 1491, at the Palace of Greenwich. And again, my pronunciation, nope, that's, that's how we that's say correct. that in the U.S. Okay. That's correct. <laughs> he was created the Duke of York. Um, at the age of three. And now this is because he was the second son of the king. And this is actually not an old tradition at this time. This was just a precedent set by his grandfather, Edward VI. Uh, or I'm sorry, Edward IV. <laughs> I'm out of dyslexia there. Edward IV had named his second son the Duke of York, uh, probably because his claim came from the Duke of the dukedom of york so it was a an honor that he laid on his second son and that's a tradi- tradition that henry the seventh continued so henry the eighth as the second son of henry the seventh was named the duke of york he received a typical classical education of the time as well as training in the typical athletic pursuits such as horses archery jousting he was known for being a physical specimen He enjoyed the outdoors, he enjoyed academics, he enjoyed religion, he just was an all-around prodigy. Um, Unfortunately, at the age of 10, his life took a turn um, at the death of Prince Arthur. 
So Prince Arthur was the Prince of Wales, and he was the firstborn son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. Um, unfortunately, he died in 1502 at the age of 15, just 20 weeks after being married to Catherine of Aragon. His brother, 10-year-old Henry, became the Prince of Wales. Henry hadn't expected to become king, and his education hadn't been geared in that direction, and there's some speculation that if life had gone a different way, he may have entered the church. He was well known even then for his interest in theology, his religious fervor. He probably would have become pope one day had he not become king, which is ironic considering that he did in fact become the head of the church. Mm-hmm. In any case, the death of his brother put him in line for the throne, and his life changed drastically. At that point, he was kept largely out of the public eye. By this point, Henry VII had lost three sons, so this was his last son and heir, and he wasn't going to take any chances. So he really kept him locked away. He's basically um, like the boy in the plastic bubble at this he point. Re- he really was. You know, his bedroom, I think you could only access it through Henry VII's chambers. It was... Not a great life for a young boy. So let's talk about Catherine of Aragon because, as we just mentioned, she had been married to Prince Arthur. And Catherine was the, or Catalina, as she was known in Spain, was the Spanish Infanta. She was the Princess of Spain, the daughter of Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella I of Castile. So You may have heard of them. You may have heard of them. They funded a little voyage... In 1492. Christo- mm-hmm. <laughs> Christopher Columbus, or Cristobal Colon, as they would have called him. The two monarchs were They also famous. did a lot of other bad things, but that's... They did a lot of stuff. They <laughs> these We're going to cover them. They yeah. were infamous in Europe. I mean, they were... There's a reason Henry went to them for a marriage alliance. They united the kingdom of Spain by their marriage. Um, and England and Spain were both enemies of France, so the match was highly desirable. Also, the two big powers in Europe at the time were France and Spain. England was trying to become a big power, but um, on the continent, it was really Spain or France. And Spain had been largely involved with their own internal conquest and unification, so they weren't that heavily involved in European politics, but they had a lot of money, they had a lot of, they had a big army, And by making this marriage alliance, the match would lend credence to the Tudor claim uh, through the recognition from Spain that would stem from the match. And as we covered in our intro episode that aired a couple of days ago, if you had listened to that, we talked about the fact that Henry VII took the throne by right of conquest and he didn't have a very strong claim to the throne. Marrying Elizabeth of York helped further legitimize him, but it was really important at this time that the other monarchs in Europe recognize him as the true king of England. So this marriage alliance, there was a lot riding on it. Interestingly to note, Catherine also had a very strong claim to the English English throne through her mother, which was actually stronger than Henry's. She was descended from the Lancastrian side, so at least they were on the same side, but She's named after her English great-grandmother, who was Catherine of Lancaster. So Catherine of Lancaster is descended from Edward III. We talked about it's kind of a mess of a family tree, but her claim was a little bit stronger than Henry's because she was descended from a direct heir and not a off-branch through a mistress later legitimized like Henry VIII. And so marrying her is another good way for... Any children the Tudors of that, to legitimize the throne. Yes, any children of that marriage would have no doubt that they were sitting on the right throne. Um, the Spanish monarchs also, to clear the way for the marriage, made sure that um, it would be clear for Catherine's children to take the throne. So they insisted that Henry get rid of the Earl of Warwick, who was the son of Duke of Clarence. And this is a holdover from the Wars of the Roses. Um, not only were different sides fighting each other, but there was also a lot of interfamiliar infighting. So as a result, you've got the Earl of Warwick, who's the son of the Duke of Clarence. You may remember from Shakespeare, Richard III, he gets drowned in a vat of Malmsey wine. Um, but he had a very strong claim to the throne. So the Spanish insisted that he be removed from the line of succession. Any No question could be 
out there regarding the doubt of the validity of Henry, or sorry, Arthur and Catherine's children. So Henry VII complies and has him beheaded, and Catherine's on her way to England. She married Arthur in 1501 at the age of 16, and shortly thereafter they set off for Ludlow Castle in Wales. Um, Arthur was the Prince of Wales, so it was fitting that he should preside over his princedom. And all seemed to be off to a great start, but unfortunately, by April of the following year, Arthur was dead. He most likely died of sweating sickness, which is a really strange illness that seemed to be prevalent in Tudor times, and no one's ever heard of it again. It was probably um, a flu. Yeah, yeah. That's what it sounds like when you read about it. Like it kind of sounds like swine flu. It sounds terrible, yeah. whatever it is. I also had read that there's some conjecture that he also may have possibly died from testicular cancer given the rapid decline that he suffered in some of his, his symptoms, and it's really aggressive in young men. And also the claim that the marriage was never consummated. Exactly, yep. Interesting. In any case... Catherine was a young widow, and nobody was quite sure what to do with her. So I just alluded to this, but she claimed from the very beginning that the marriage had never been consummated. Obviously, nobody will ever know because they weren't put to bed publicly. Well, and, and Arthur, as a young boy, was loudly proclaiming the day after the marriage that it had been consummated. Yes, he said he had spent the night in Spain or something like yeah. that. Yeah, classy boy. <laughs> But that could have been bravado, you know, nobody knows. In any case, Catherine insisted to her deathbed that the marriage had never been consummated. I think there are certain historians that take different views of this, but, you know, unfortunately that's between them, and I'm not going to speculate on... Well, and also given her extreme faith and, like, religious, like, real religiosity, like, it's highly unlikely she would have lied confessing on her deathbed. Right. So that was, we're just going to talk about that a little bit because that's going to just continue <laughs> to that to be a question to which there is no answer. Um, but there were some other issues. Um, there was an issue with her dowry. So her dowry at the time was 200,000 ducat, which I guess was the Spanish currency um, or something. But at the time, that was a really large sum. Um, and only half of it had been paid. And Henry VII was miserly. He loved to collect money. He really didn't want to lose it. Um, and he didn't want to have to pay back the 100000 that he had already received. So that was a real sticking point. Um, and it was also really important not to lose the Spanish alliance for all the reasons that I just laid out. The, the legitimacy of the English throne was really riding on this alliance. So they decided that Catherine should marry Henry, who at the time was a child. He was five years younger than her. Um, by the time all of this is taking place, I think he was about 11 or 12. Um, but he was still only a child. So there would have to be a delay. And Ferdinand, Catherine's father, was also being really cagey about paying her dowry. So all of these negotiations just drag on and well, on and on. And also, like, Catherine's importance in the European chessboard also was waxing and waning as, you know, her own family was going through succession issues. Like, her mother died, and suddenly Ferdinand was not the king of Aragon and Castile. He was only the king of uh, Castile, I believe. And right. No, it was Aragon. And I'll, Aragon. I'll get to that. I've, yeah. I've got oh, that. Okay. That's coming. So, yep. like, if she's no longer the daughter of Spain, she's no longer that important. Yes. And that's, you know, that's really important to talk about because that's Spain was not a united kingdom. It was Aragon and Castile. And Castile was the larger kingdom. There was a lot at stake. There's. I wanted to mention the papal dispensation before we got to that because okay. you're you're absolutely right. That was a big consideration. But prior to that happening, there was also this. We go back to this question of virginity. So, the Bible in Leviticus bans a man from marrying his brother's widow. It's just, and I did not write down the language. Sorry, but it's. It's a no-no. There's a lot in there and, about nakedness. I don't think, yeah, we don't really need Oh, to. there's a lot in Leviticus that you're not supposed to do. Even though Catherine swore up and down that the marriage hadn't been consummated. And here's the way marriages worked back then. You would contract a marriage. And the only thing that was needed to make it a true marriage was the consummation. You didn't even technically have to get married in church. So 
really this question of consummation is of paramount importance. And even though Catherine was swearing that it hadn't happened and by this point it's clear that there's no baby coming, they decided, you know, let's just to be sure we'll get a papal dispensation because the canon law prevents Henry from marrying his brother's widow and let's just cover all the bases. There were some churchmen in England that felt that even if you'd get, even if she was a virgin and she hadn't consummated the marriage, it would still not be valid. So it was really important to get this papal dispensation. And everyone agreed that the marriage should go ahead. And these were really common. You know, Catherine, two of Catherine's sisters married the same man, and people would get them to marry their cousin because there were all kinds of rules about how close of a relative you could marry. And so this this was common, common practice. Which is so ironic or interesting considering later in history, it seems like every royal was marrying their first or second cousin. Like, well, they were Protestants. Well, I guess so. that was it. Like they weren't worried about what the Pope said. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, and then with all of that being said, we'll get to this issue of the political map. So first Elizabeth, the queen, Henry's mother, dies. And um, Henry VII actually considered marrying Catherine himself. So that kind of put a wrench in the marriage negotiations. The Spanish monarchs were completely against this. They were totally disgusted by the idea. And it also wouldn't have been good for Catherine. Their whole goal was to get her on the throne so that she could influence politics in England. And stay on the throne. Like if she marries an old man who likely only has 10 years left of his life, like once he dies, she's basically done. Exactly. And she would she just wouldn't have any influence. It would leave her in just as bad of a position as she was currently in as the widow of the prince. Um, or, you know, even worse, because she could maybe be married for a year or two and then have a very long widowhood. She'd have no political influence and she'd be damaged goods on the European marriage market. So that they were just completely against that. Um, the Pope was also taking his sweet time and granting the dispensation. This was Pope Julius II, I believe, and yeah. he was just kind of known. He, he didn't like to make decisions. He just was taking we'll, his time. We'll see as we go along that that is a trend with the Popes, is they don't like to make decisions. Yes, yes. Um, because I, th- I think he knew there was a lot at stake here, and also it's just an exercise of power. Um, to keep you waiting. And then we have, as you mentioned, Catherine's mother died, which reduced Catherine's value because her father lost control of Castile, which was larger than Aragon. So Spain was not one kingdom. It was made up primarily of the kingdoms of Aragon and, and Castile. And then you had Granada at the bottom, which they had conquered. And the way that the succession worked was that as long as Ferdinand was still alive, the heir of Isabella could only inherit Castile, and it wasn't until Ferdinand died that their child would inherit both, and it was basically essentially had the effect of Catherine was not as valuable as she had been the day before her mother died. Mm-hmm. And essentially at this time, she's living in poverty. No one's claiming her. And her dad won't send her any money. Paying the king for won't, her. Yeah, yep, Henry VII won't give her any money. Nobody, she can't pay her servants. And I say poverty, it's relative, obviously. She's still living like a member of the court, but she's not able to live to what the standard of which she had been expecting. And really, they're just fighting over her, and she she can't do anything. She can't go home. She She's not really part of the British court. She's just kind of stuck. So she has her own little mini court happening off to the side, and things are just getting tight. And at the time, she just had so many health problems. She was depressed. You know, honestly, she was probably suffering from depression, if you read between the lines. And anxiety and stress. And, and yeah. Yeah. And also, she didn't really speak English at this point either. So she's relying on advisors to tell her what's going on. You know, she's basically being a pawn between her father and Henry VII, and in the meantime, she's spending as if she's got money to burn, but she's essentially like those celebrities who are like, I can't afford, I'm so poor, and like, it's because they can't afford like their, you know, giant mansions and sports cars, yeah. so... And also, Henry VII is just playing fast and loose with whether or not Catherine's even going to marry Henry VIII. In fact, he has the Prince Henry secretly renounce the betrothal that they did; they had finally agreed upon. So Catherine doesn't really know what's going on. But all of this kind of comes to a head in 1509 when Henry VII dies. He died of tuberculosis, so it was a very long, protracted death. Um, and on his deathbed, he kind of has a an attack of conscience, and he commands Henry that he should marry Catherine 
And it's, this is fine with Henry. He wanted to marry her anyway. Um, you know, he think about it. He'd known her since he was ten. Since he was ten, she was considered very beautiful, and he probably had a little crush when he was a kid. And then she just became his betrothed. And I think I think he wanted to marry her. And he was he was almost eighteen. He was seventeen, so he's ready to get married. And she was twenty three. She hadn't had any kids at the time because we have to remember that women aged exponentially back then because every pregnancy added ten years to your life. But twenty three was old to have not had any kids. At it that was point. very old when you consider the fact that she came to England when she was sixteen, seventeen. Um, it's it's been a long wait. So they decide that they're going to do this. They're actually going to get married. Um, it's notable, though, to point out here that Henry did have some hesitation that she had been married to his brother. Um, Ferdinand assured Henry that it was fine since the Pope had given his dispensation, finally. And he also pointed out that the King of Portugal had married two of Catherine's sisters in succession. Um, in any case, Henry wanted to marry her, and this is the first demonstration that uh, what Henry wants, Henry gets. So he just went through with it, even though he has this minor hesitation. Ultimately, she's what he wants. So he goes for it, and he tells anyone who would say otherwise, don't worry about it, I know what I'm doing. Um, they married on June 11th, 1509, and they were both crowned together a few weeks later as king and queen of England. And then, then they started this young, beautiful Renaissance court. Uh, Henry VII left over one million pounds in the treasury, which which is a crazy sum of money. Let's let's adjust for inflation. I'm not going to do the math for you, but if he had a million pounds in 1509, I that's crazy rich. Well, he was uh, notoriously miserly in his later years, so. Uh, well, let's yeah, and let's just call it what it is. That is crazy rich. Yeah. And also, how much is two hundred thousand? If, if he's got a million and he's considered crazy rich, Catherine's dowry was huge. Yeah, and also some of the hang-ups with her dowry was because half of it was supposed to be delivered in, like, gold plates and, like, dishware. Oh, yeah. And he was quibbling over it because he actually thought better of that and preferred that the second half be delivered in cash. Although it's interesting because if you – I don't know if you've watched this on Netflix. They have all those little documentaries on the um, – castles and things of England and they do one on Hampton Court which was the um it started as the little house project of Wolsey who mm -hmm. will come up later but Henry kind of took it from him and demanded that he give it to him well and, he didn't like Wolsey being richer than him <laughs> oh well he was making this grand palace and um they talked about that where the plate was a it was a really big deal because you were supposed to display it and the more you had, the richer you were. And the idea was you could serve everybody in your house and still have a full set on display. So it, it kind of makes sense that that would be part of her dowry. But it also kind of makes sense why Henry VII would have just wanted cold, hard cash. Now, is when they're talking about plate, is that like plates and dishes and silverware? Or is it just the silverware? I took it to be like plates and dishes. Yeah. Um, but I'm actually not sure. If anybody out there knows, let us know, because this is the stuff that really fascinates me. Well, there was, like, this whole scheme where, like, Henry VII wanted to trick her into using it. So, like, he had it sent with her to Wales when she was living with Arthur, and, like, there was this whole scheme to, like, get her to use it, and then he could declare that it was worthless because it was supposed to be in, like, mint condition when he received it. And it was just, like, this whole scheme over, like, her, like, dishes. <laughs> well, you don't become crazy rich by, like, not pinching your pennies, I guess. Yeah. So in any case, they've got a ton of money to spend, and they spend it. Um, you know, at this time, Henry's known as this Renaissance beautiful king. He's educated. He's smart. He's athletic. He's handsome. He was 6'3", which at the time was really Massive. tall. Um, but he's got a lean, muscular frame and a, quote, fine calf. I don't know what that means and his fair... calves were pretty oh well oh so it's literal okay yeah and fair skin he was considered quite good looking um a, a lot of people said that he really resembled edward the fourth who was also known to be very good looking um he had tons of energy and there's even a story he survived smallpox and was up and about in a few days which if you know anything about smallpox that's no mean feat 
Well, not many of us know much about smallpox these days. But, uh, yeah, no, yeah. it's true. But back it's then, it's like it chickenpox times infinity. Yeah, it will kill you. Yeah, and he was known at the time for his academic, musical, and religious pursuits. He he was extremely well educated. We talked about this a little bit. He received the typical classical education, but as I mentioned, he really was destined for the church. So he probably got a little extra education, and he was also really interested in it. He wrote several treatises and letters to the Vatican that were so good that they put them on display. Um, He was, as we mentioned, extremely religious, known to attend six masses a day. Even when he would go hunting, he would attend three masses a day. Um, And he considered himself an authority on church doctrine. So, again, already laying the groundwork to know more than the Pope. Mm. He wrote a treatise called A Defense of the Seven Sacraments Against Martin Luther. So let's just take a moment to remind everybody, Martin Luther is the monk who rejected the teachings of the Catholic Church, and I'm not sure if this actually happened, but the story goes that he nailed his his treatise, the 95 Theses, to the door of the church in Germany in 1517 and essentially started the Reformation. Was it 1517 or 1519? It was 1517. I thought it was 1517. Hmm. We will look that. Memory of like Rory Gilmore saying 1519, but that doesn't mean that it's true. (laughs) I was going to say, oh, well, if it happened on Gilmore Girls, then it must be true. (laughs) Yeah. In any case, Henry thought this guy was full of crap. He believed some reform of the church was necessary, but he was not okay with heresy. And that is what Martin Luther was really doing in the eyes of the Catholic Church, as he was committing heresy heresy. Luther read the treatise that Henry wrote and said he was, quote, raving like a strumpet in a tantrum. But the Pope was so impressed that he gave him the title Defender of the Faith. Mm -hmm. Um, Ironically, this is a title still in use. Today in England, Queen Elizabeth bears the title Defender of the Faith. Just a different faith. Just a different faith. Yeah, uh, even when Henry divorced the Catholic Church, he still decided to call himself Defender of the Faith, which is well, and it's, yeah. I think part of that is, like, like you're talking about here, like, Henry was not alone in his beliefs that reform in the church was necessary, but Mm-mm. a lot of people were devoutly Catholic and didn't believe that. They thought Luther was taking it a little far. And so I think Henry truly felt that he was practicing the same religion, just with some oh, yeah. minor changes. And, and so he would have no qualms about keeping that title because in his mind, the only difference was he just removed the pope. Right, and and we will talk about that more in parts two and three, but it is important to note, you know, we talk about this idea of Henry VIII leading to um, the Protestant kings of England, and that is true, but Henry VIII, to the day he died, practiced the Catholic faith. Yeah. Um, he, like, he, when he, he opened when the he, door for Reformation, but he yes. himself was not truly a reformer and the reformation that occurred during his lifetime was like very small baby steps very small and the church of england that he set up was essentially the catholic church without the pope i mean that was really the only difference yeah but i still think it's ironic yeah oh absolutely and it's ironic that he's raving against a reformer when essentially whatever he would want to think about his decision and his choices and the outcome he by all intents and purposes was himself a reformer you know but but the idea what I'm really trying to get at here is this guy was not spending his days ruling his kingdom he was spending his days engaging in the academic pursuits that he was really interested in he was kind of Um, a nerd he was he really was and he promoted scholarship among other men in fact um Thomas More will become a character that we'll get to know um, he was a lawyer who eventually became the Lord High Chancellor. He was very, very academic, very religious, very Catholic. In fact, I believe he was sainted. Um, yes, he... That that relationship ended badly, yeah. but, you know, early, early on in the reign, he was a big influence. I can't think of Thomas More without thinking of Ever After. Yeah, where they always talk about Utopia, the yeah. book that he wrote. Um, he, he, you know, he wrote a lot of books. He was very interested in, he was a lawyer by trade, but he was very interested in theology. And that's probably why he and Henry got along. 
um, until they didn't because he absolutely did not support the divorce from Catherine or the um, break with the church. And we're, we're going to refer to this break with the church as a divorce because I think that's colloquially what people call it. Mm-hmm. It was really a divorce from Catherine of Aragon and a break with the Roman Catholic Church. We'll just call it a divorce because that's really what it was. This court that he built was magnificent. The, you know, he was spending his father's money left and right, and he was very popular. He was described by one courtier as having an extraordinary, almost divine character. What a hero he now shows himself. How wisely he behaves. What a lover he is of goodness and justice. Our king does not desire gold or gems, but virtue, glory, immortality. So I think we can take from that quote that he was very charming, he was young, he was everything you could want in a king. I think someone else had said he was such a king as never before. And I'm sorry, I don't have quotes for this. Like, who said this? (laughs) These are just things that uh, people had said. But in any case, this... These are little talking heads off to the side while the court's going Well, they they are. And everybody, everybody, I think the idea that I'm trying to impressed here is that everybody really loved him you know for Henry VII and everything that he accomplished in his reign he really wasn't celebrated he was underestimated he was viewed as cold he was miserly he doesn't have this reputation as being this golden king and his son very much when he took the throne was everything that he just epitomized the idea of what the monarch should be in England Um, but let's look at the other side of the coin because Even then, he was starting to display some traits that he became known for later in life. He was vain. He was immature, short-tempered, and headstrong. He was obsessed with being the best-looking monarch in England. Um, Later on, he has quite the rivalry with the French king, Francis I, because Francis was, I think, only three years younger than him, and they reigned opposite each other for quite a long time, and Francis was also known for being very handsome and popular and good with the ladies, and it was it was kind of a back and forth as to who who really was the best king, um, and and the idea that he would even engage in something like that tells you a lot about his personality. Notably, he's the first king to demand to be called Your Majesty instead of Your Grace. And I think a lot of his temperament can be traced back to the fact that he was never intended to be the king, right? So his upbringing naturally was very different from Arthur's, and he spent more time with his mother and his sister and was, you know, coddled by the women as the boy in the house. And you can see the result of that when when he grows up, and he's absolutely used to being, you know, to getting his way, and everybody around him is a yes man. That's very true. You know, I always wonder if his mother had lived, if she had been, would have been more of a moderating influence. Um, We'll never know. Uh, Unfortunately, she did die in childbirth, which is the lot in life of many women, two of his wives, um, one of them having his baby and the other one having a child after they were married. But um, after his death, after his, that's what I mean, after his death. But it was, it was a gamble, you know, and basically every time a woman had a child, there was a 50% chance she would die. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think Elizabeth of York had seven children by Henry the seventh and was relatively young when she died. So it really affected him. And, And like you mentioned, he just was not raised with the burden on his shoulders. So when he found it, it took him a long time to really focus. That wasn't necessarily always bad. He really loved the sea and sailing and being on the ocean. So he's actually credited with founding the British Navy as we know it today because he financed the building of several warships. But he he really wasn't at this time, interested in the business of ruling. Um, Really more focused on, well, today it'd be like a college student going off to college and partying and spending daddy's money. Like, that's really what he was doing. It wasn't until the late 1520s that he actually buckled down and began to really rule. His court was more known for extravagance. And this is interesting. This was actually in that documentary I was just talking about. So they were constantly on the move so that the various residences could be cleaned because his court was so big and so extravagant. They would just have these massive feasts and just like debase the building they were in. And I was, and they were talking about how people would 
pee in corners. Like, yeah. they didn't go to the bathroom. They just pee and dogs would be peeing no, all over the floor. No, this is something that I read. There's a book about, like, the household, essentially, of Henry, in the court of Henry VIII. And this was a thing. Like, the, the floor was not covered in carpets. It was covered in rushes, which I think essentially are, like, reeds that they just mm-hmm. laid all over the floor. Like and they straw. Would, yeah, and they would spread them with, like, sweet-smelling flowers and try to make it smell good. But, like, two days in, if you've got this massive court... Men are like peeing in the corners, peeing in the fireplace. They're cooking a bunch of stuff, eating a bunch of stuff. Like there's no indoor plumbing. It was probably yeah. pretty nasty, pretty it quick. Probably got a little ripe after about yeah. a week. Uh, so they were just constantly on the move. And Henry was also famously a huge germaphobe. Any hint of sickness and he'd leave. Um, in summer, they'd go on progress and leave London because the plague was around and that was when it was most active. So they just hit the countryside for cleaner, healthier air. Um, He was notably deathly afraid of plague. Um, So he basically just spent the summer on the run from any kind of illness. At this time in his reign, when he decides he's going to be a king, he takes on the tradition of the kings of England and he decides to go to war with France. As you do. As you do. And, you know, this was encouraged by Catherine. She's the Spanish queen. She's anti-France. It's encouraged by Ferdinand, her father, and the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian, I believe. And they all decide we're going to attack France together. Now, this goes quickly sour because Henry is young and headstrong, and they realize that Henry really is there. He wants to depose Louis the king and take the French crown. So um, Ferdinand and the emperor make a secret treaty with Louis the Seventh um, to go around Henry. Louis the Twelfth. Oh, was it? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm reading an X as a V. Um, <laughs> it's it's 10:30 on Friday night. Um, but yes, Louis the Twelfth. Um, they make a separate treaty with him, kind of saying, you know, whatever happens with this guy. Just don't worry about it. Um, but famously, there is the Battle of the Spurs. And this is Henry VIII's, in his mind, great claim to victory in battle. But basically what happened is the French army came upon the emperor's forces and the English forces, and they ran. And there really wasn't a fight at all. But if you ask Henry VIII, and there was a huge tapestry hanging at Hampton Court that depicts this bloody battle. And actually, it's interesting in the tapestry, one of the historians on the documentary was saying that Henry VIII is depicted in the middle of the battle on this white horse, and you'd ne- you'd never see that in real life because no. he'd be such a target that everybody would kill him immediately. So it's really a form of propaganda, but it's also his big foreign victory, and it's not even much of a battle at all. I so, love that they call it the Battle of the Spurs because the French were using their spurs to run away. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> It's, it's a so mean, like <laughs> yeah, it's it's play acting at being this conqueror. Um, you know, then this goes back to the Hundred Years' War that we talked about a little bit in our last episode um, that preceded the Wars of the Roses, but that was the conflict between England and France. And so it's this back and forth of England keeps trying to reclaim French territory, and the French keep beating them back. and it's almost like a little game, um, except they actually do go battle and people die but um you know between the kings I, I, I don't know if they ever really thought they'd accomplish anything um but what's interesting about this particular episode is that while he was gone he left Catherine as regent and the scots got wind of the fact that the english were occupied in france and decided that they would invade england because nobody's watching the hen house so to speak um but Catherine, daughter of ferdinand and isabella hens. she she is very competent at warfare, and she, you know, obviously with assistance, defeats back the Scottish invasion, um, which actually leaves the King of Scotland dead. And so... Because um, he made the mistake of going on the battlefield. Yes, yes. And, you know, and you want to get back into European marriages and politics. This is actually the brother-in-law of Henry. Um, James mm-hmm. the Fourth, I think it was, was married to his sister Margaret. And it leaves their infant son, James the Fifth, as King of England. Uh, Sorry, Scotland. Um, But, you know, Henry's off play-acting battle in France and Catherine's at home winning battles, you know, holding on to English soil. So 
Catherine was a formidable queen, I think, um, which I don't think she gets enough credit for. No, I mean, and she grew up on battlefields, you know, like she, you were talking yep. about earlier, the conquest of Spain of their southern territories, and Catherine traveled with her mother from battlefield to battlefield. That was just her life. So war was not a foreign concept to her at all. And in fact, she encouraged Henry to go to France. Oh, yeah. She was all about conquering France. You know, Spain and France, again, hereditary enemies. Catherine was not a fan ever. This is a great segue because my next point, I wanted to talk about the fact that when they started their reign together, and they did start it together, you know, I think this is kind of an interesting scenario where you don't have a king taking the throne and getting crowned and then finding a wife. They got married and then they were crowned together. And that's not to say that Catherine was queen in her own right. She was queen consort of England, but they really started their marriage together as the ultimate power couple as we would call them today, um, she brought the might of Spain behind her, and he brought the riches and the ambition of England. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, what could go wrong? Um, but unfortunately, and Ali, I think you mentioned this, a uh, king is only as good as his ability to continue his dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately for Catherine and Henry, this was a huge problem. And also Um, hugely necessary because of the history of them trying to legitimize their throne. Yes. So in August of 1509, shortly after they're married, Catherine announces that she's pregnant. She went into labor in January of the following year, unfortunately prematurely, and gives birth to a stillborn girl. This was cause for sadness at the time, but not uncommon. And, you know, she's 23. She's young enough. Nobody was really worried at this point. In some ways, they're relieved because it proves she can get pregnant. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, and this is the way of the world back then. You know, babies died all the time. It was sad, but it was more like, okay, but, but we know that you can have babies now, so, so we're good. By May of 1510, she's pregnant again. On New Year's Day, 1511, she gives birth to a prince named Henry. It was a big celebration. He, you know, just... Everybody's losing their minds. The succession is secure. Thank God. Um, sadly, he died two months later, which, again, not uncommon. Not, not uncommon. Um, in 1513, she had a stillborn son and another miscarriage in 1514. Um, so things are starting to look a little dire in the baby department. Um, in 1515, she's pregnant again. And on February 18th of 1516, she gives birth to a healthy baby girl, Mary. This will turn out to be the only child of the marriage of Henry and Catherine to survive infancy. And we'll um, hear from her. <laughs> we Oh, we will. Catherine's last pregnancy resulted in a girl who died within hours in 1518. And at the time, Catherine was 32. So I don't think this is a big deal to say. You and I are 32. So, you know. times are different. (laughs) Times are different. Um, At this time, 32 after six pregnancies, you might as well be 55. And I think there's. life was tough back then. Yeah. I mean, all these miscarriages, all these pregnancies, you know, a lot of them were accompanied by severe medical complications. Yes. It all took its toll on Catherine. And I think also she went into menopause pretty early. Well, no, but back then that was normal. Yeah. I mean, you have to think about the nutrition yeah, absolutely. that people were getting. They weren't really getting a lot of nutrition. I think people just aged prematurely. You know, you start your married life at 14, 15, menopause at 40 isn't really... Well, 32 was advanced age because it was unlikely you would live much past 40. Right, right. So, you know, she's considered an old woman at this point. And, and at this point, it's been six pregnancies. You have one surviving child. It's a girl. It's pretty clear she's not going to have a son. She's not going to give Henry a son. And that sounds gross to say, but that's, that's, what, that's the way they viewed it. They are looking at all of this through the lens of this is Catherine's responsibility. Well, the woman always gets blamed, of course. <laughs> oh, of course. And but it was considered their fault. And, like, let's not take a, you know, let's, looking through this through modern eyes, I think now everybody knows, generally speaking, the sex of the child is determined by the father. And Henry fathered 
four girls and two boys? Living boys, I guess. Well, no, well, or three boys if we count his bastard. So he had a propensity to follow, to father girls. I mean, Mm. it's, it's whatever. They didn't know that back then. But in any case, it's a problem. By 1518, nine years into the marriage, the succession is looking really, really shaky. Overall, she had five miscarriages and stillborns, and she's starting to visibly age at this point. Um, people are starting to talk about the fact that the king should not have married such an old queen. Right, the um, age difference she, is really starting to matter in a way that people five, sort of glossed over right, it before. Right. It's only five years, but if you're talking about a woman who's been pregnant every year since she got married, she's going to age exponentially compared to her her um husband who's reaching his prime um you know she married him when she's 23 now she's 32 henry's only 27 he's in the prime of life and he's starting to look at his wife and think you know i liked you before but now i'm kind of turned off by this whole situation and he's visiting her bed less and less he's he's starting to have affairs um he had affairs throughout their entire marriage and we're not we're not going to focus on too well, that many was of those. normal like that was normal not to give him a pass but that was no. considered completely and expected behavior at the time with a few exceptions by all accounts he was very discreet about it he's starting to not even look to Catherine for the purpose of procreating because everybody at this point she's hit menopause it's a lost cause it's not going to happen so he starts to obsess about the succession and he goes back and he remembers the doubts that he had regarding the validity of the marriage at the very beginning. And he starts to worry that the lack of a son is because he has offended God by marrying his brother's widow. And as early as 1514, so this is, you know, Catherine's pregnant at the time. Rumors have gone all the way to Rome that he was going to put Catherine aside. This particular rumor may have been the result of his affair with a woman called Elizabeth Blunt. Um, This affair lasted five years, and it did result in a child. In 1519, she gave birth to a son. So this proves that Henry is capable of fathering a healthy baby boy. So this is a big deal. Just with Um, a different woman. Just with a different woman, but he it's not his fault, you know? It's That's, this is the validation he needed. So um, he acknowledges the boy, and um, he, he's getting concerned about the succession at this time, so that may have played into it, but there's no doubt in his mind that this is his son, and he gives the boy the name Henry Fitzroy. And we talked about this when we talked about the Windsor episode. Um, Fitzroy means son mm. of the king. Mm-hmm. So there was everybody knew this is the king's bastard. Um, Do you think it's... A little bit ironic, though, that he's convinced himself that the only possible reason he hasn't had a son with Catherine is because he offended God, and yet he has a healthy baby boy by committing adultery, and that's cool. Like, you can break one of the Ten Commandments and have a kid because God's smiling down on that, but you are offending him by getting married? Oh, well, you have to remember, Henry is the authority on religious doctrine. Oh, yeah, that's right, okay. And knows everything. I mean, you just tell yourself... He's the king. No one's ever told him you're wrong. He's yeah. just he's just telling himself what he wants to hear. Um, and let's talk about the succession because there is really good reason to be concerned at this point. England at this point has never had a queen. Um, we talked a little bit about in our intro episode the anarchy um, and Empress Matilda. She was the daughter of Henry the First. She doesn't really count. She tried to claim the throne, um, but ultimately she wasn't successful. And it, I believe, was her son, Henry II, that took over. But she she's in the books as an almost queen, but really they've never had a sovereign queen of England. And you also have to put this back into the context with the War of the Roses. Henry VII, as we mentioned in our intro, had a very slight claim to the English throne and took it by right of conquest. If Henry VIII dies without a son, there are plenty of Plantagenets lurking in the woodwork, mm-hmm. ready to come back out and claim the throne as a son of the king on the throne with a very shaky claim. An unbroken succession was just crucial to avoiding another war. I mean, we're not that far removed from the last war. So this is really fresh. There are people still alive who fought in that last war. So 
this is really fresh and leaving a small girl on the throne would just in no one's mind ensure the succession which is ironic very ironic yeah considering and also, how all of this turned out but very interesting too considering Catherine comes from a family where women can rule and successfully mm-hmm. rule and the fact that you're passing the throne to a female is no big deal it's like cool but England the last time they tried it there was civil war. So Henry is rightfully a little bit concerned, like, that's not the way we do it here. It makes sense why he'd be so concerned. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, as a result of all of this, the marriage of Catherine and Henry starts to break down a little bit. She, her influence starts to wane. Henry starts to seek out an alliance with France, much to Catherine's annoyance. You know, again, we have to remember the whole reason they put her in England was to keep England and France as the Spanish princess she's supposed to influence Henry in the other direction he's not listening to her it just really becomes clear that he doesn't care what she thinks Um, he even betrothes Mary to the French Dauphin the prince of France Um, they just decide you know what we're gonna be allies but in 1519 Catherine's nephew becomes Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. So her status improves because she's the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor. And Allie, you mentioned this at some point. Can you remind everybody what that is? The Holy Roman Emperor? Mm-hmm. Oh boy, I will do my best. <laughs> um, at this point, I well, the Holy Roman Emperor Empire starts with Charlemagne, Charles I. Mm-hmm. And by this point in time, it's not quite that but it's still um essentially i believe encompasses uh like belgium a little bit maybe flanders the lowland countries like parts of germany i'm probably getting this entirely wrong and also by marriage the um habsburg empire which I'm not sure if they were Habsburgs at that point, if I'm getting that wrong, but essentially what became the Austro-Hungarian Empire is related to the Holy Roman, encompassed in the Holy Roman Empire at at this point because Charles V's parents were both extremely well-connected. So the way I understand it is this is an elected position. Well, yes, but really it usually goes to the ruler of this area of Europe. Okay. Because yeah. the way I understand it is all of these areas that we just talked about might have their own sovereign, but they're all part of this empire, and the Holy Roman Empire is kind of, like, in charge of all of them. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, I think essentially, and it might be a figurehead position at this point, and maybe at some point we should talk about the Holy Roman Empire, because my understanding of it at this point in time is a little bit shaky, except that Charles V was the son of Maximilian, who we talked about earlier, and Juana, who was Catherine's sister. And so when she died or was shut up because she was insane, one of the two, um, he inherited her claim to France, to the Spanish kingdoms and the claims to the Holy Roman Empire. So he was like the most important man in Europe at this point. Okay. That's a good, that's a good maybe, Maybe next episode I'll give a brief account of what the Holy Roman Empire actually means <laughs> at this point so, in time. But basically, this greatly improves Catherine's status. Um, she's now the aunt of this big honcho in Europe. So she starts to push hard for an alliance with Charles instead of with France. And Henry's kind of receptive, but he's still courting France. So in 1520, Henry and Francis participate in the Field of Cloth of Gold, which is basically this big show of an alliance that was really more about each of them showing off. Everybody wore their fanciest clothes. It it didn't really lead anywhere. I think Henry and Francis actually literally had a wrestling match. And after this happens, Mary's betrothal to the French Dauphin is broken. So this alliance with France isn't really going to happen. Um, in fact, Mary is betrothed to Charles V, and England declares war on France. Catherine's thrilled. Unfortunately, a few years later, in 1525, Charles reneges and says, well, I haven't gotten a dowry and I haven't gotten a bride, even though she's, she's a child. She's kind of young. <laughs> um, 
he says, you know what, I'm going to look elsewhere for a bride. And Henry and Francis start talking again about an alliance. And it's clear at this point that Catherine's political influence is all but gone. Her nephew's not held up his end of the bargain. Henry's looking more and more to France. And she just cannot influence him in any direction. And a lot of this is because she's no longer capable of having children. So, you know, she... Any, if she had been this, the mother of the future king, she might have been able to hold on to this hold on Henry even as they grew apart as people, but she has nothing over him. And it's a real blow in 1525 when Henry creates Henry Fitzroy, the Duke of Richmond and Somerset. And this is considered by a lot of people to be the first step he's going to take toward legitimizing him. So he doesn't have a son by Catherine, but he's got this healthy son sitting out there Let's make him a noble. And I think at this point he was even thinking about maybe marrying him to Mary, which you want to talk about interfamiliar marriage. That's kind of gross. They're not going to get a papal dispensation for that. I mean, they maybe could have. They didn't actually work out, but this is something he's thinking about because he's really concerned about the succession. Um, But all of this kind of comes to a head in 1527, Rome is sacked by the emperor's troops and the pope is imprisoned. Um, This has a lot of a ripple effect in Europe. Um, First of all, it pushes England and France closer together because it's kind of a big deal. These are Catholic countries. The emperor's troops now, granted, it was not at the behest of the emperor. I think his troops were unpaid and they were hungry and they just kind of got pissed off and sacked Rome took advantage of it. Yes, yes. It was very, I mean, he kept the Pope prisoner and, you know, thought, well, this is pretty great. I have the Pope He's like, to it do wasn't my bidding. me, but this might work. Yeah, so England and France get pushed a little closer together and it starts to become less politically advantageous for Henry to have a Spanish queen. We've also seen the vulnerability of the Pope. So when we want to go back to that idea of the papal dispensation, Henry starts to think, well, what kind of, validity does that have because the pope is not the ultimate authority look how vulnerable he is he's been captured how can i rely on his dispensation so he starts to publicly state well that we he should has point out about that this the validity. was a different pope right right but the, when i say the pope we're talking about well the i just want to make it clear that when he's questioning the validity it's the validity of the prior pope's statement yes, and now yes. we're dealing with a new pope we're yeah. dealing with Pope Clem- Clement. Clem- Clement? Clement the Clement. second. Yeah, I don't know how you say that, but we'll um, just go with Clement. Clement, yeah, like Clementine. But all of that's to say that he just starts to have a lot of doubts, and he starts to, at this time, publicly state that he's not sure that his marriage was even valid. Um, he's also in love. And looking to make a change in the wife department. so He might know who he wants. <laughs> he might. So all of this is kind of coming to a head, and Catherine's position is really in danger. But let's take a step back and realize she's the Spanish princess. She's the queen consort of England. She's sitting on the throne. She has a daughter who's the princess of England. Who and Mary at this point has been vested as the Princess of Wales. Like yes. she hasn't, she hasn't actually officially been given the title, and, and and that's also an interesting thing that Henry did. He he always sort of liked to keep things flexible, so he vested his son as the Duke of Richmond and Somerset, but he never officially went through like the ceremony. Right. So and he did the same with Mary. So he they have these titles. Mary's given her own court, her own household, like. She had, like, I mean, this is, like, a three-year-old with, like, you know, tons of people at her disposal. So, like, he's got two kids set up in this, and but they're all, it's all done in a way that could be reneged on if necessary. Right. But what I'm trying to say here is that in the eyes of everyone, Catherine is a legitimate queen. Mary's a legitimate princess. Their position should be secure. But the links that Henry decided to go to to get rid of her would shock everyone and we're gonna leave it there for you that's our cliffhanger so hopefully this has given you an idea of who we're dealing with what the reign of henry the eighth looked like in the early years there was a lot of material to cover so if you're still listening thank you i know this was a long episode 
Um, if you came here for the really juicy stuff, you're going to have to come back next week. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, Catherine and Henry's marriage was not... I mean, it was essentially drama-free for, you know, the most for most of it until the end. And so, like, these early years, like, they're just living up their best lives, you know? Like, spending all his dad's money, like, having tournaments, and by all intents and purposes, being a happy couple. But the pressures of the time really come to play. And, yeah, I mean, we get 20 years of this, and then it leads to essentially 10 years of just soap opera (laughs) yep yep so tune in next time for the soap opera because that's coming yeah and Catherine's not going down without a fight (laughs) no she's not well thank you for listening and we will see you next week yep we will be back all right I'll talk to you later Monarchast is produced by me Allie and me Claire And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.